On behalf of RBCS, welcome to this webinar on Seven Deadly Testing Sins. I'm Rex Black, president of RBCS, a worldwide testing and quality assurance firm serving clients ranging from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. Since 1994, we have delivered insight and confidence to hundreds of clients around the world. We have a team of international consultants that deliver customized training, consulting, and outsourcing services for companies that are looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. I'm the author of many books on software testing, as well as being the past president of the ISTQB. Attendance at today's webinar earns PMI PDUs. Thank you, Mike Lindhorst, for reviewing the materials for PDU status and for making valuable suggestions. Attendees will receive an email telling them how to claim PDUs, including the PDU code. PDUs are available for live webinar attendance only. Before we start the webinar, a couple of housekeeping notes. If you have any questions, feel free to submit them at any time during the presentation using your GoToWebinar interface, but please note that they are answered only at the end. There is no need to ask for presentation copies, as these are already on our fancy new website, rbcs-us.com. You should be able to find them by searching under Seven Deadly Sins. By attending this webinar, you have automatically been registered for the free e-learning drawing. Check your email over the next couple days and watch the spam filter. I hope you enjoy this free webinar from RBCS. We do these free webinars as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS, we are a not-just-for-profit company. So, seven deadly testing sins. Are you a sinner? Are you doing evil? Uh, today, you will find out. Now, you, like me, may have seen uh, people who are smart, uh, capable testers or entire test teams that for some reason don't seem to do very well and, in fact, might be seen as doing very poorly. Um, and you might say, hmm, what's the story with that? These people seem to have the right skills and they seem to have you know, resources, maybe not all the resources they need, but many of the resources they need, why, oh, why would they be punished so severely by fate? Well, um, many times this is caused by doing some of the seven deadly sins that you see listed here, being irrelevant, not knowing something that's really important, getting in the way, being excessively adversarial, nitpicking, not knowing or not caring about priorities and being uh, late to the game. So let's um, look at those and I'll illustrate each one of these uh, by first explaining what the sin is and then explaining, uh, giving an example to, uh, to illustrate it. So irrelevance, redundancy. Uh, this is pretty straightforward. You're either testing stuff that doesn't matter or you're testing stuff that was already tested by somebody else. So either way, people look at what you're doing and they say, hmm, what's up with that? That doesn't help me out. So how do you avoid it? Well, first off, recognize that one of the fundamental central problems of software testing and test software test management is one of selection. You got an infinite number of tests that you could run. As a practical matter, it's infinite anyway. Um, and um, you've got to decide which of those tests you actually are going to run. 
So risk-based testing, which is something that uh, many of you have probably heard me talk about quite a bit, is an example of a test selection strategy that uh, is really smart and will allow you to focus in on what uh, you and all the rest of the stakeholders really care about. And it does include the stakeholders because it is a stakeholder-driven process. Um, now, it's also important, in addition to doing the selections in a smart way, is to know what other people are doing. Um, so, for example, if you are covering a lot of uh, low-level kind of stuff, like you're down crawling around in the weeds looking at uh, statement and branch coverage and trying to achieve high levels of code coverage, and your developers are already doing that, then, you know, why? Why are you doing that? Uh, now, if your developers aren't doing that, maybe they should be doing that. Maybe you need to work with them to help them get more capable in terms of their um, unit testing so that you can focus on things that are more appropriate. Now, UAT and beta testing, this is a little bit of a, of a danger zone or potential danger zone, uh, you know, saying, oh, I'm not going to worry about testing that because the customers or users are going to catch it during uh, beta test or UAT. Uh, can set you up for a pretty unpleasant experience because usually in UAT, the customer users do not want to be finding a bunch of bugs. Um, and uh, beta test, you know, people are often okay with finding some bugs, but if they get something and they look at it and go, wow, this looks like a really untested, unready piece of crap, then they're not going to be particularly happy about uh, participating in that process. But there are certain kinds of problems that people might be okay with being found in UAT and beta test, um, and uh, you should know what those are and try to coordinate such that you do not end up uh, um, making that mistake. Um, so a case study of that. I'm going to start off by admitting my own, my own sins here. Um, the um, uh, years ago, I managed a test team that um, did testing of a um, operating system database uh, query tool. So it ran across many different OS database combinations and allowed people to do English language types of queries. And um, it had this really nice command line feature that allowed us to get in there and uh, um, run tests uh, through this, this uh, scripts. We used uh, Unix scripting uh, languages, uh, think Python and Ruby and so forth, but we were using something a little more basic than that. And um, we found that we could we could automate all sorts of different queries. And, and we were like, well, you know, the accuracy of the queries is really important. I mean, after all, that's what this thing does. So we just tested the heck out of that. Um, and, you know, that was important, but we kept chasing that dragon way longer than we needed to. Um, and we were um, getting to the point where we had just dozens of different operating system database combinations and, and a number of, um, of new uh, problems that we would tend to find each time we added a new data operating system database combination to our automated test set was pretty limited. but. Uh, we were spending a lot of energy on it. Meanwhile, there were all sorts of installation and usability bugs that were not um, being caught and were resulting in a tremendous number of um, phone calls to our tech support folks who were not happy. 
they were uh, internal customers of ours and they were not satisfied customers let's put it that way and it created a whole bunch of reputational damage uh, that persisted long after we became aware of the problem and said oh okay well we'll We'll put a bunch of manual tests in. We'll make sure to cover that. Uh, even for months after we had been doing that, uh, the perception still was, oh, you know, those testers are off, you know, geeking out on their automated test sets and they're not focusing on, uh, um, you know, what uh, what really matters to our customers. So you got to be relevant. Now, possibly related to that or possibly causal of that is just a lack of, of uh, important skills in your team or uh, you lack the skills or that the skills are there, but you're not aware of something, something important that really matters to uh, deciding um, what to test, what to focus on, how to report your results, who to report your results to, and so forth. So um, let's focusing on the skills part for a moment. I've talked about this before in previous webinars. Um, there is a technique, it's called task analysis, which you can use to identify the critical skills, the, the skills that are important for your team. And having identified the skills that are important for your team, you can then put together a test team development plan and make sure that you are continuously improving the skills of your team. Um, and, and this can make a huge difference in terms of the effectiveness of your team. Uh, Tom DeMarco and Tim Lister in their book, Peopleware, cite a 10x improvement in uh, team effectiveness uh, or, or at least difference in team effectiveness between the, the most capable teams and the least capable teams. So. Now, you know, I, I doubt that you're going to achieve that mat magnitude of improvement because, for one thing, you're probably not currently managing the least capable team possible, um, and you probably won't be able to, you know, get to the, be the most capable team possible because there are usually constraints and resource problems and so forth that get in the way. But you should be striving towards that to improve constantly. Um, and then make sure you know your stakeholders. Know, know who your stakeholders and customers are and get connected with them. One of the contributors to my irrelevance sin on the previous uh, example uh, came from me. Uh, I knew that tech support was one of our stakeholders, but I wasn't having regular phone conversations with the tech support manager. If I had been picking up the phone and talking to her on a regular basis, uh, she would have straightened me right out. But she didn't feel like it was my or her job to chase me around and say, hey, you're blowing it. You're not testing things. Um, you know, she waited for me to come to her. So this is the same thing for you. Know your stakeholders and uh, be in regular touch with them. Um, not only will it uh, have concrete benefits in terms of making you more aware of, of important facts and context, it also has an important political side benefit. Of it sends the message that you actually care which hopefully you do. Now, a case study in this, an example, um, I think it's safe to say that more than half of the people who work as testers don't know what an equivalence partition is, or if they've heard it and they know the definition of equivalence partitioning, they wouldn't actually know how to apply it in their day-to-day -day work. Uh, and I say this because I have uh, worked with testers and talked to testers around the world and uh, um, 
trained testers, uh, some of whom have been testing for some amount of time, and they do not have a, um, a practical um, idea of how to carry out equivalence partitioning, and they do not practice it on a regular basis, uh, which is just, you know, remarkable. Uh, and it's funny because people people will geek out over things like pairwise testing, like, oh, cool, go get a pairwise testing tool and I'll do pairwise testing. It's like, yeah, but if you don't know how what equivalence partitioning and boundary value analysis are, you actually don't know how to use that tool because you can't set the tool up properly to, to be useful. So it's just, you know, um, ignorance of fundamental test design techniques. Um, and you get beyond equivalence partitioning and boundary value analysis up to higher levels of test design, like uh, how to make sure that every possible pair of events that has occurred in the state-based system has been tested. There's a technique for that, and it's, it's not terribly hard. I can teach people how to do it in less than an hour, but uh, people don't know how to do it. Um, and so... <laughs> You know, you miss bugs like, hmm, well, that system works, you know, if you just push this button. But if you push this button and then you push this other button, boom, it doesn't work. And so that stuff gets missed. So why? Why does this happen? Why is there is there ignorance? Well, we have honestly proponents of ignorance um, that uh, do increase the amount of trouble in our um, our profession here. Uh, you know, the the anybody can test. Um, there's a fellow out there called Chris McMahon. You can do some do a web search for him. And I don't necessarily uh, support everything he said about this, but he's made some very interesting comments about the testing ghetto. Uh, I know that's a super loaded word, um, but uh, uh, take a look at it and give it a read. It's, uh, you know, I think he's being a little bit uh, uh, outre, I think is the uh, French word for that, a little out there um, to uh, provoke thought. Um, and certainly he's, he's saying some important things about this, you know, anyone, this, this idea that anyone can test. Um, you know, sometimes we have trouble, uh, we're, we're a training and consulting company and we have trouble selling people on the idea of training people on structured testing techniques. Uh, um, you know, this sort of, uh, well, you know, anyone can learn it or, uh, it's not that important. We just need to learn the tool, you know. Um, uh, we just need to learn, you know, uh, agile, uh, I've heard that too, you know, it's like, well, but you know, regardless of life cycle, if people don't know how to be effective as testers, how are they going to be effective regardless of the tool they have, how are they going to be effective? So there's a lot of chasing the bright, shiny object that, that gets in the way of just, uh, fundamental knowledge and, and obtaining it. And then finally, you know, my own personal, um, bugabear here is is with this whole idea of schools of testing and i'm you know i'm on the record that first off there is no such thing as schools of testing there are just different strategies of testing um, and strategies should be blended together to achieve an optimal outcome you don't have to adhere to a school or follow the leaders of the school uh, so so there's that and and then the as a, as a practical matter too uh, this has created a lot of barriers to discourse and exchange of ideas because there's been uh, on, on one side of this debate a great deal of demonization of anybody who doesn't believe in the schools of testing concept and who doesn't support um, the uh, high priests of that concept if I can use that phrase and uh, that has definitely created barriers to discourse and exchange of ideas. I, you know, personally have just had to block out a bunch of people on Twitter and 
erase posts on our company Facebook page because there's just this, you know, these vitriolic attacks that have nothing to do with exchanging ideas that gets out there. And, and you know, we, we as a profession don't do ourselves any favors when we pour oil under our own feet as we're trying to walk forward. Now, I do see a, a you know, very bright light here. I've spent a lot of time involved in the ISTQB program, and I think that that has really uh, helped to bring a lot of awareness about these fundamental techniques. Now we need to see that the next step happens and people move on to the, the higher levels, the advanced levels, where there's going to be more um, application of those techniques. Um, skip something here but no okay um, so obstructionism getting in the way hands on the hips no I'm the only one who cares about quality around here I get to decide when we're ready to start testing uh, I get to decide when we're done testing I am the arbiter of the definition of done uh, you know, those sort of things, making a big deal out of an obstacle uh, that is fairly easy to surmount, uh, resisting change, uh, saying, well, you know, I don't like agile life cycles, so therefore I'm going to insist on sequential style uh, rules about testing, even though we're in an agile situation, and I'm not going to adapt or you know, I'm, I'm not going to automate or I'm, I'm only going to automate and I'm not going to consider any sort of manual testing. So just, you know, generally being an obstacle, getting in the way. Um, so um, part of this can be um, uh, originate both bottom up and top down. So the process cop problem. I've had clients tell me before that their test teams were directed to be enforcers of process purity, um, yet their test teams were not given um, the political support and the the open backing of upper management when they did try to enforce process purity and and they get blamed for being in the way. Uh, so my my personal opinion on this is that um, whether you've been told to be a process cop or whether you've decided your job is to be a process cop, it sucks to be a process cop. Um, so get out of that job. That's not a thankful job. Um, that's not that's not a job that's likely to do you a whole lot of favors. Um, it, it is basically a bleed over from the Department of Defense and the way the software is developed for Department of Defense. It's called independent verification and validation, which is basically somebody coming in from the outside and, and uh, you know, poking and prodding the test process to make sure that the right things are being done. Uh, perfectly appropriate in that context, but if you're not in that context, you're probably just making yourself um, a troublemaker for to, to little benefit to you or anyone else. Now, in some cases, it's perfectly nice people who have been stuck in the role of process cop. In some cases, it's just contrary personalities. Uh, so, as a manager, you know, uh, if you have if, if you are interviewing people for a test position. You want to be very careful about hiring somebody who sees it as their role to be some kind of purist, um, defend the customer from bad quality or something like that, because that person is likely to be a real pain in your ass. They're likely to be running around creating problems in the organization, fires that you are going to have to put out. 
if you have someone like that in your organization already, then you need to uh, figure out how to handle it. Um, you know, worst case scenario is that person has to go find something else to do, maybe in the organization, maybe somewhere else. Uh, in other cases, you could kind of deal with that person like, you know, a body deals with a splinter or something like that. It just kind of surrounds it with a cushiony tissues and so forth and just leaves it there. Maybe you can find something productive for this person to do that does not lead to encounters with anyone outside of the test team. This is, of course, exceptionally hard to do in the, in the new age of, of agile development and so forth. Uh, so, you know, might might not be possible. Obstructionism. Um, is something that does leave lasting damage. Um, it's I have seen this in organizations where there have actually been serious uh, management shakeups at the top levels of test teams and the obstructionists thrown out, new people put in, and it just takes a while for people to uh, accept that the new regime is actually in place and that this, this you know, um, um, anti-service mentality has, has been purged. Uh, now, as an example of this, I've, I've worked with a tester in the past who was a really nice tester within the test team. He was a great guy, uh, very, very uh, skilled. Uh, definitely, you know, the ignorance problem I talked about before didn't have that. He was really, really good. But outside of the test team, he was a problem because he was just he had very negative attitude about the quality of the product. Um, he would say negative things, and then when he was proven right or proven to be more than right, actually, you know, maybe not not tough enough, he'd say, yeah, you see, I'm always an optimist about the level of quality. Um, and, and then, you know, it was okay as funny comments within the test team, but sometimes that stuff would leak. Um and so, you know, I had to kind of focus on, okay, you know, you're here, you're a test lead, you're leading your testers, but let's keep in mind, you know, uh, you know, pessimistic on the inside, optimistic on the outside. You know, as my uh, colleague Ren McNary said to me years ago, uh, when I was doing consulting work at Dell, that was his watchword, optimistic on the outside, pessimistic on the inside, because if you are showcasing too much of that stuff, it's very different, difficult to be seen as helpful uh, servant of the larger project goals, which you definitely need to, to be. And this poor guy, you know, he, he had a lot of respect from his fellow testers, but outside of the test team, as things were problematic. And when he as it worked as a contractor, I think that that kind of uh, uh, interfered with his long-term work prospects. So related to this is adversarialism, uh, where you're you are, you, you know, you you take on this process cop role, or you take on the quality cop role, and you actually, um, you know, not only are you an obstacle, you 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 uh, cast yourself as an adversary, um, as somebody who's there to slow things down or or. You know, to 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 be skeptical. I mean, so the, this you know this kind of derives from the whole um, uh, American uh, system of, of justice, which is an adversarial one, where you have defense and you have prosecutors, um, or in a civil case, you have one side versus the other. And essentially, the idea is that the process works out through an adversarial 
process to come to some sort of good resolution, a proper dispensation of justice in the case of the criminal system or, you know, an equitable arrangement that is, uh, um, you know, fair uh, to the parties involved in the case of the civil uh, matter. But, you know, that that mental model is completely inappropriate in a in a project team where you're actually there to, as I said before, be a servant of the larger needs of the project. Um, and if, if you're thinking, well, you know, I get the developers on the one hand are going to be pushing for release. And so it's my job to push back on that. Well, I mean, it's your job to, in my opinion, provide a, a objective assessment of quality and and uh, information about what's been tested and what hasn't and so forth and you know to be a source of of trustworthy credible information that can be used to make decisions not to be a partisan or a or a a supporter of one position or another um <clears throat> so again here i think what you're looking at is a need for clearly defined mission you know what are the objectives of testing what are you trying to accomplish uh what would it mean to properly accomplish those and I think if you go through that process with stakeholders and managers, you'll you'll find very quickly that 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 nobody's idea is let's have an adversarial process. Now you you know I could be wrong. There are exceptions to this. Uh, uh, IBM famously one of their groups, as as reported by um, I think this was uh, Tom DeMarco um, uh, talked about this of they they had this test group. This independent test group that like played this up and got campy on it, and 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 uh, the the manager of the group, uh, well, the whole group took to wearing these black dusters, these long black coats that are worn by bad guys in Western movies, and uh, then the head of the group, the test manager, uh, grew this big long uh, Salvador Dali mustache, and, and he was in his test status reports when he was delivering those in meetings he would twirl the end of his mustache like uh that uh, villain in the dudley do-right cartoons or i forget if it's that or the boris and natasha thing but anyway he was playing it up for camp in effect um and apparently that worked at least that's the story i heard i'm i'm really kind of skeptical about that because um, maybe it did work, maybe it didn't, and, but if it did work, it's a real black swan uh, for sure because when I've seen this with clients, this kind of adversarialism, uh, it really it isn't good and it, it results in a lot of hurt feelings and grudges and, and you know, a perception that the tester or test manager stabbed people in the back and uh, uh, it, it doesn't go away easily. So I had a a situation where I did an assessment um, for an organization. This is a big organization. You would recognize their name if you live here in the United States. And um, they, they, their CIO um, basically got tired of software quality problems. And so uh, he empowered the testing team um, to be the enforcers of, of best practices, software development best practices throughout the entire life cycle and across all teams. And um, then what happened was in order to enable that, a small group of people were uh, selected by the CIO and sent off on this sort of skunk works kind of effort to endeavor to find a tool that could be set up to enforce um, these processes, 
um, and, and basically prevent things from getting done uh, without, quote unquote, proper approval and so forth. Um, and they went about doing this in, in all of the wrong ways. There was no uh, transparency or visibility into what they were doing. Uh, they went off and they selected this tool and nobody knew about it. There's like a handful of them and they just came back and said, Shazam, here's the tool. Everybody got force marched through training on this tool. They had zero input into how it was implemented. When people, you know, complained about, you know, hey, we don't like this. This isn't going to work. It was just, hey, shut up and eat the sandwich kind of thing. Um, and uh, it was a very, very resented. And that there was a lot of projection of how people felt about that tool onto the test team because even though the test team wasn't in charge of putting the tool in place, they were in charge of making sure that people did what the tool was requiring them to do, and they were sort of the 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 uh, avenging angels of any sort of uh, violation of how the tool worked. Now the CIO had told them to do this, but gave them zero political cover. And then what happened was the CIO left and passed the reins over to a new CIO, but didn't bother to tell the new CIO um, why, what his reasoning was, why he had done this, why is the test team out there, you know, uh, being these these uh, quality cops and process cops. Um, so the new CIO, after a while, realized, wow, something's like seriously broken here, um, and called me in to take a look at it. And um, I came back and said, well, you know, I mean, good news, bad news. And the good news is that your test team's capabilities as a test team are pretty good and, and not too far from being really good. And your development organization overall is, uh, you know, reasonably good and, and could advance to really good, and, uh, you know, in, in a couple of years. But there's no way you're going to do it with this management team because everybody at the management level hates everybody else. It was funny at the individual contributor level, there wasn't a lot of resentment, but at the management level, I mean, people were just, you know, it was, it was clearly the case that people would rather that the project fail than that the project succeed if they could figure out a way to make the project failure their enemy's fault. And the end result of this, uh, after all of the Sturm and Drong of uh, me coming in and doing the report and handing over the report and so forth, and uh, the CIO trying to fix the problems was that he just gave up and he disbanded the test team and outsourced all the testing work. Now, uh, another uh, deadly sin of testing is nitpicking. Uh, making a big deal out of things that aren't uh, particularly important. And this is especially a problem if things that are important are not um, getting caught. So, you know, the test team or individual testers are off perseverating about, oh, well, look at this. Look at this. There's all these bugs over here. There's a big pile of bugs. And it's like, yeah, but you missed the two or three bugs that are resulting in us getting, you know, uh, one star in the app store ratings or that are resulting in horrible product reviews or that are resulting in, you know, 10,000 uh, tech support calls per month. Uh, you know, so it's like, why, why are you so focused on this stuff that's, that's uh, unimportant? Uh, why are you making such a big deal out of it? And, um, 
part of this can just be a breakdown in the bug triage process and that, that people sort of see this as a poker game and that they have to really um, uh, bluff to try to get anything fixed. The perception of nobody listens to me unless I scream, basically, or shout. Um, some of this can just be just um, not having good uh, criteria for what constitutes the different priority and severity ratings. And, and or those have not been well communicated to people. So it's more just accidents. Um, in some cases, you will get people who are what I call repeat inflators of just, you know, testers who are like, look, if I don't call it a SEV1, nothing's going to happen. So I'm going to call everything a SEV1. Um, and the other, the other kind of somewhat related thing here is where you have testers who have some sort of uh, um, personal worth stake in whether a bug that they have identified gets fixed. I always listen for this as, an, as a consultant. I listen for the words, my bugs, my bugs, your bugs. What did you raise them? Are they your babies? You, you, you seem human to me. You don't seem like you're going to be the parent of any bugs. So how do they become your bugs? Oh, they're bugs that some developer created and put in the software that you happen to be the one who came across because of the, the tests that you got assigned to run. And that's just, you know, it's random, right? So they're not your bugs. So get over it. Um, now, you know, that's not to say don't care about them. But but when you get to think about, you know, I my value as a tester is measured by the percentage of, of bugs that I find that get fixed. That's a screwed up mentality. Now, that can be a screwed up mentality that somebody got because management gave them that mentality through dumb uh, uh, performance evaluation practices that, that definitely happens uh, whatever's going on um, you know look at those things try to get that fixed um, this is actually a, a uh, more of a it's it's, it's verging on a, a, a what is the, the venal versus a deadly sin uh, venal versus mortal because uh, once you clear this up uh, the, the the bad feelings do tend to go away but but certainly credibility can take some time especially if you have somebody who's famous amongst the developers for for making uh, big deals out of, uh, out of nothing now I have heard this all over the place um, that you know well if I don't file it as a sev one nobody's even going to bother to look at it and it's funny that, that the more often I hear that from uh, testers during an assessment, the more likely I am to hear from developer from programmers and developers that they just ignore the ratings. Um, I've also seen um, bad bug reports, including inflated severity bug reports, used as an example to demonstrate how bad the bug reporting process is. I, I remember one particular bug uh, review meeting where the development manager picked out three or four uh, egregious examples of poorly written bug reports, including bug reports that had inflated severity ratings. And he just hammered on those and he's just waving them around like a bloody shirt about how horrible the test team is and how, you know, they're making big deals out of nothing. This is a sample of three or four bugs uh, out of uh, literally like a thousand plus in the backlog. And so when I brought that up, he's like, oh, well, those bugs aren't customer facing. And what, it, what had happened was that he had, he had succeeded in undermining the credibility of the test team based on a small sample of situations where there had been some nitpicking and some lack of attention to detail in the way the bug reports were written. Uh, and this stuff does happen. So, you know, if you are a test manager, don't, don't put up with it. 
And if you're a tester, don't do it. It can seem tempting to say, well, I'm finding these bugs and they're not getting fixed. Nobody's paying attention. Maybe if I just call everything a SEV1, that will get attention. Well, you know, no, it, it might get attention, but not probably not of the type that you would like. And it will probably just get ignored. All right, blindness to priorities, not not uh, uh, focusing on you know what are the critical things that have to happen um, that you know would would be essential to um, uh, project or organizational success. Now this this can be this can be sort of a, a, a mirror image of some of the things that I've talked about before of uh, you know, not actually being frank about the damage that's possible for a defect or uh, not testing something because, oh, you know, we test that area, we find bugs, and that developer's got really thin skin and gets really upset, and, you know. So eh, let's just kind of leave that alone. Uh, no, I mean, you need, you know, the, I, I criticize the... Um, sort of adversarial model, the, the U.S. justice system model of thinking about testing before, but I think there's, there is sort of a metaphor that works here. You think of the, the uh, symbol that's often used for justice, which is the, the woman holding the scale with a blindfold on. Uh, you, you do have to try to be that, that person that you are objective and fair and just, you know, saying this is what, what it is. Um, and that, but that has to be uh, tied to a good understanding of what the priorities are, so that you are looking in the right places. Now, you might say, "I don't know what the right places are." Okay, then if that's the case, you're not talking to your stakeholders enough. If you're if you're saying, "Well, I, I'm not allowed to talk to my stakeholders. I have to. Uh, uh, everything has to go through my manager." Well, you know that's kind of old school and and. As organizations move to agile, there's less and less than that, but that still does exist. Um, and um, you know, if that is what's happening, then um, you know you want to try to get away from that kind of siloing and say, no, we, you know, everybody from the individual contributors in the test team up to the test managers and test directors need to be finely attuned to the priorities, um, because otherwise we we end up. Uh, doing the wrong thing, focusing on the wrong things, not being clear on how important things are. And um, uh, this can lead to serious mistakes. Now, usually once once people kind of pull their, their heads up out of the sand and start looking around and paying attention, they get credit for that fairly quickly relative to some of these other um, issues. Um, now, to give you an example of what the consequences can be, uh, <clears throat> I worked with a startup organization at one point that that uh, had their their funders their funding was cut by their their venture capitalists, uh, or at least they threatened to fund it. And and so what happened was that the uh, management team was called into a room and told, "Look, we're going to have to make significant budget cuts here, which is going to mean we're letting some people go, and uh, you're going to have to come and justify your headcount to me." And the development manager made a good case for uh, keeping the developers, which, you know, to be fair, it's a little easier because, you know, no developers, no code. But half of the testers got let go. And uh, I asked the development manager, why did that happen? Because um, he was there. And, and he said, you know, 
What happened was that the test manager really wasn't able to explain the value of testing in any sort of way that, that connected to organizational priorities. So there was a lot of vague, um, uh, what we would call in the United States, mom and apple pie stuff, which is basically stuff that everybody can get behind, but it's really vague, about you know finding bugs before release is good and quality is good and bugs are bad and and um, you know we we are here to provide objective insights and you know blah 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 you well yeah but you know how is this going to help us get a product out sooner uh, in a way that's going to get the the um, uh, venture capitalists off everyone's back and actually happy about what's going on that that really wasn't demonstrated by what the test manager was saying and therefore. Um, you know, there was a this perception of, well, you know, testing is good and testing, you know, is important and we got to have testing. But how much of it we really need? Hmm. I think we're paying more than we need to be paying right now. So uh, let's just take half. Um, so that can be a, a problem. Now, um, <clears throat> last momentism. Uh, this is the... Um, discovery of critical bugs right at the end and and usually the reaction to this is why the hell am i hearing about this right now for the first time um, which um, can happen for a number of reasons so uh, one thing if you're not doing risk-based testing which you should be um, it's quite possible that you're running high risk tests at the end of your test period whether that's an agile or whether it's sequential and you know, finding a showstopper bug in the last day of an iteration or the last day of a four-month-long system test period, a waterfall project, nobody's going to be happy about that. Now you might say, but it's not my fault. I try to do risk-based testing, but I don't get stuff in the right order, or I can't get the stakeholders to get engaged, so I don't really know where the risks are. Well, then fix the broken process. Um, make sure that you you are, um, you know practicing proper risk-based testing, which includes sequencing the test such that you're not testing critical stuff right at the end. And if you are getting critical stuff at the end in like an agile development uh, project, you need to make sure people are aware, look, when, when I get critical user stories that have critical risks associated with them in the last two or three days of a sprint, what's going to happen is sometimes we are going to find critical show-stopping bugs, and I can't help you with that. If you want me to help you, you've got to help me help you by giving me the critical stuff earlier. Make sure people understand that. Now, another thing that can happen is it's like, well, we do all of our, our pre-designed tests up front, and then we fill in the remaining time with reactive testing, like exploratory testing and so forth. And then sometimes the exploratory testing finds critical bugs. Well, of course it will. I mean, any sort of analytical testing strategy is going to miss some number of bugs. So... Don't wait until the end to integrate the reactive testing, which is what's your your stop, basically your check on the on the uh, bugs that you would otherwise miss through um, your your more pre-designed types of tests. Uh, get that you know happening throughout. So it does take a while to get this in place, and certainly there can be obstacles to instituting risk-based testing. I'd, I'd refer you to my website, which has tons of resources on how to successfully implement risk-based testing. I invite you to take a look at that. Um, so um, 
I've seen this happen, and one particular project comes to mind where uh, the testers were just like, oh, look at this, oh, look at this, like right towards the end of test execution. This is in a, in a uh, uh, traditional iterative type of approach, a rational unified process uh, project where you know, they're, they're towards the end of the last iteration. It's like, here's a bug, here's a bug, here's a bug. Look at all these bugs, 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 bugs. It's outside testing service provider. And so people are you know, thinking, oh, this is great. We're finding a lot of important bugs. But the client, especially the programmers and the project managers and the client side were like, whoa, why? Why, why are we getting hit with this, this water cannon of bugs now at the last minute that's going to slow down the, the release? Uh, you know, now, of course, it's fair to say, well, would you rather not hear about those at all? But the response is, well, that's a false choice. Um, I would rather hear about them earlier. And there was no attempt to use any sort of, of risk here. It was just, you know, test here, test there. It's going to kind of haphazard. And this resulted in the client deciding, you know, this? these guys just don't get it. They're, they're, not, they're not helping us. Okay, so seven deadly sins. Um, basically, what I've been talking about here are some fairly simple mistakes. Often, these are just sort of mindset mistakes, or, or you know, not doing your homework type of mistakes that uh, are relatively simple and often fairly simple to undo. But having made them, it causes big problems. And sometimes they're not even seen as mistakes. They're seen as, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. You know. Um, you know, there was a, a joke that somebody told me about a test team that had these baseball caps made up that uh, had their their uh, logo on it and then said, uh, uh, we're not happy until you're not happy. And I was like, oh, well, that, that's really all very hilarious to you within the test team, but I bet it's not hilarious when you make the, pro the project manager or product owner or somebody like that unhappy and then you know, it's going to be turned the shoe's going to be on the other foot if you're probably not going to be too happy. So, you know, recognize when you're doing these kinds of things. And I think all of these are resolvable. Um, now, just because you do resolve them, understand as a test manager that there can be lingering damage, um, especially when, when hard feelings are associated. So, um, what, when you make these improvements and make these changes, don't just make them and go, well, I, you know, I hope, I hope nobody noticed that we were doing that, um, that bad thing. And so I'm not going to bring people's attention to it. No, if there's reputational damage, if there's hard feelings, then, uh, rather than just pretending that didn't happen, go out and market the fact that you have resolved those problems so that people feel like, ah, okay, this is, this is on the right track and understand that, um, you know, you're you're going to be under the microscope for a while, um, you know, because people will be uh, thinking, well, you know, this is a short term change and maybe they're going to just slip back into bad habits here once uh, once nobody's looking. All right. So as usual, I put the advertisement up as we go into the Q&A session. Uh, Amit says, for last momentism, what if it just happens? Sometimes despite priority, prioritizing things according to risk and sharing that, there are constraints that prevent finding bugs until a fairly late stage. Besides sharing that concern, is there something to do to address this? 
I think that if if there are things that create the risk that you are going to find bugs at a late stage, as I said, you need to make sure that everybody is aware of that. That look, that the fact that we got this critical feature late in the game is, um, you know, going to expose us to the risk that that bad things could be found late. So that it's like as a collective awareness that you know we 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 want to do all we can to help find things in the right order but we you know we can't do it if you give us stuff late if you give us stuff late obviously we're going to test it late and if we test it late we could find bugs late uh, i got a question for ian here who says nitpicking i work in an agile environment and when we get to the end of the sprint development will look will not look at any bugs that are, that are less than a sev one hence a lot of wasted time and defect triage is this a bug triage process issue or an agile approach issue or both? Well, um, <laughs> it sounds to me like there is a failure to talk about and uh, properly handle technical debt, um, which is sort of an agile, agile implementation issue of, um, you know, saying, well, if it's not a showstopper for this sprint and we can go into production with it, we're just going to go into production with it um, and we'll get to that bug later. And then what sometimes happens is that later never comes and you're dragging this ever increasing uh, bag of technical debt around with you waiting for some sort of miracle of extra time. Now, some organizations do a better job of dealing with that where they go, OK, we're going to it's all right to accumulate low severity defect backlogs from one sprint to the next as long as periodically we do a hardening sprint or a stabilization sprint where we uh, clean up the mess um, and i think that's um you know that's an that's an approach that uh, that, that has worked for our clients i know agile purists uh, uh shudder at the mention of hardening sprints but uh, we've certainly um, I've seen that work for clients before and um, so that you know that that might be an approach that can be uh, can be discussed. But it sounds like you know part of what's going on here is um, uh, not managing technical debt properly. So I would start with that. Now I would also look at the bug triage uh, because if if the bug triage is basically falling into this pattern where it's like a poker game or an arm wrestling match of like you on the one side as a tester or test manager are like pushing to try to get as many of your defects classified as sev ones so at least you have a ghost of a chance of them getting fixed meanwhile the development managers are all like oh no 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 we just want to get stuff done or you know developers we just want to get stuff done and out of there into production and the product owner you know is maybe abdicating or is not understanding what's happening when you accept all this increased technical debt so Sounds like that process might be broken too. So I would look at both of them. Uh, be careful about assuming that this is somebody's fault um, because th there can be organizational messages that are coming down from above, like ship at all costs, like put product out there or die. Or um, <clears throat> to paraphrase Mark Zuckerberg's famous quote, uh, move fast and break stuff. I'm paraphrasing it to make it PG rather than R-rated uh, webinar. Um, you know, if that's the message, you know, move fast and break stuff, then 
you know, the whole you're, you're kind of swimming against the tide if you're saying, well, wait, we got to step back and think about managing technical debt. So, you know, senior managers and executives, uh, they send powerful messages and they're not sitting in the role maybe when these decisions are being made, but their their influence is in the role for sure. I got a comment from Sinisa here. Uh, you addressed very important and sensitive topics. Thanks. You're quite welcome. Another uh, comment from Brian. Uh, as always, thanks for the informative webinar. You are quite welcome, Brian. Thanks for coming. Um, let's see. Uh, da, 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 Lena says, uh, would you consider saving data to a database, a unit test? Well, yeah. Um, Kind of, depending on the granularity of the test, right? So if it's like we have these queries and we want to make sure that these queries save data properly, and so we're going to test these queries in isolation by themselves and make sure that they're working properly across you know, your network or what have you, then yeah, that could be a unit test. And it could be a unit reliability test in the sense that it's like we're worried that every now and then connections drop and data gets lost, so we set up this loop to hammer away on you know, these these queries and make them happen. And then we do other queries to check that the data is getting properly saved. I mean, that, that can certainly be a unit test. Uh, I don't think it's the, the particular thing that you're testing that necessarily makes it a unit test. Like, oh, it's only a unit test if we're looking at a, at a, uh, a function in, you know, in C or, or a class in Java or something like that. I think it's more like if we're looking at an individually testable piece of stuff and we're worried that it might break in some way and we're testing for that, and that's, that's a unit test to me. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Amit says here, I will ask this one early, way too early, but I might drop off later, so I'll ask it now. I went quickly over the list of sims, and some of them seem to me to be very antithetical to most common agile team configurations, be it ignorance, last momentism, or even adversarialism. Yep. Um, and, and, and a lot of times those things are, are considered to be best practices in agile because they're just plain old best practices. Agile, agile has done a very good job of putting old wine in new skins, as the saying goes, um, which is not to insult the the old wine at all. I mean, there are a lot of existing best practices and, and worst practices that transfer over with very little modification into Agile. Um, and, but there are some that are they're certainly exacerbated um, if they are present in Agile, and, and certainly some of the things that you point out at me would, would qualify. Um, <clears throat> Let's see. Ian says, thanks for the answer. Answers. You're quite welcome. You had another question here of uh, uh, Ian. You said, what type of training is important in the development of a test team? Um, well, this really depends on what your skills assessment shows. You need to uh, you need to go and, and identify your critical tasks and then identify the skills that are required to carry out those tasks and then assess uh, your team to find out where it's strong and weak and, and really build a plan. I mean, as, as a company that, that does a number of things, including selling training, it would be really easy for me to sit here and say, everybody in your team should take our foundation course. And obviously, Ian, I would love it if everybody in your team took our foundation course, but it would be much better if everybody in your team took our foundation course because they needed it, 
maybe they've already they already know the stuff there, and maybe what they really need is uh, training on mobile or training on agile or training on performance or training on development. You know, I mean we we've been working lately with a number of of SDET type of organizations, software development engineers and tests, where what they need is to to look at this from a very technical perspective. So, you know, really know know where um, know where your uh, your problems are before you start putting a, a training plan in place. Um, okay. Linda says, "Thanks for bringing some of these items up and reinforcing their importance or lack thereof." You're quite welcome. Uh, Deb says, and good to hear from you, Deb. When you talked about ignorance, you talked about schools of testing, equivalence partitioning, and opposition to structured testing. You have good resources for these issues. So I did a, a, a presentation called Strategies Not Schools, which I recently uh, kind of pumped on our social media. I put I put a link out there. Um, it is, it's a recorded webinar, so you can easily go do a search on uh, RBCS website and find it it's called Strategies Not Schools. You should be able to find it there, um, which gets into my, you know, objections to the schools of testing. I also was had a debate with Kem Kaner, who's one of the originators of the schools of testing concept, though you know, uh, a, a very reasonable fellow uh, and, and amenable to a, a discussion about uh, his his brainchild, as it were. And that's uh, that. That video and the audio of it is also recorded and posted on our website. And by the way, these videos and audios, recorded webinars and so forth, uh, if you have trouble finding them on our website, you can go to the RBCS YouTube channel and, and uh, find them there. Um, <clears throat> equivalence partitioning and other test design techniques. I've got some recorded webinars on that. Um, and as far as opposition to structured testing and the sort of you know, anyone can test. Um, again, I, you know, uh, uh, controversial posts uh, and, and comments uh, made by Chris McMahon using words that are will certainly stir up uh, controversy. But, you know, perhaps that's his intent, his whole discussion of testing ghettos. Um, you know, again, that's a that word ghetto, of course, is highly inflammatory, potentially. And, um, you know, I'm quoting that advisedly here. But, uh I think that some of the things that Chris said, while maybe um, you know I wouldn't necessarily agree with all of them, are are things that are important to think about. So Chris McMahon and do a search on that again. I'm not I'm not endorsing everything that he's saying there, um, uh, but I'm just saying it's it's useful food for thought that should be considered. And Chris is a thoughtful guy. <coughs> um, Stefan, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right there. Uh, asks, how would you convince the decision takers, clients, that not testing as much as possible, as early as possible in the project will impact negatively in the end? So as a general rule, Stefan, if you want to motivate organizational change, what I have found is most likely to succeed is to connect the uh, change that you are proposing to some sort of pain that exists. See, people may or may not be aware of, um, that pain 
often takes the form of, of uh, unnecessary monetary loss. Many organizations don't like unnecessary monetary loss. And when you can tie what you are proposing to fixing wasted money, that gets their attention. Unnecessary delays in product release and thus realization of revenue is another thing that tends to get people's attention. So if you can say, look, you know, we could be done three iterations earlier if we weren't dragging around this technical debt from one iteration to the next and having to fix it all at the end. Um, that could work. Um, in some cases, though, um, it, you know, <clears throat> it's more about capturing market share and, and other kinds of things. So, you know, like you, you just have to be really sensitive to what is the what are the organizational priorities and how does what I'm proposing fit within that? Because just because it seems like a good idea to you, and just because in a rational universe it would be a good idea doesn't mean that people are going to see it as a good idea. So, you know, you if you want to be a change agent, you've got to sell the change. And the way you're going to sell the change is usually based on making pain go away. It's sort of a rule of thumb in sales that says that people move away from pain about 10 times faster than they move towards a desired outcome. So, you know, example... Uh, everybody knows that, you know, you should eat right and floss your teeth and uh, brush your teeth and go to the gym and blah, blah, blah. But you want to find somebody who takes careful care of their teeth. Uh, it's going to be somebody who's had major dental problems. You want to find somebody who's serious about their diet and exercise regime. It's somebody who survived a heart attack. Okay. And the reason for that is because they're moving away from pain. Um, Linda asks, do you offer courses for learning how to do risk-based analysis with the whole project team and then testing? Yes, we do. Uh, we do this a couple ways, Linda. One is that we have a, we have a training course, uh, it's purely about teaching people to do risk-based testing. We also do what we call risk-based testing kickstarts or jump starts, which is where we work with an organization. First, we train people, including developers and testers. And then we actually spend a week going through a, a uh, uh, case study with them, basically a, a pilot project, getting them off the ground uh, doing it. And so if you would like to uh, talk about that a little further, Linda, or, or anybody else who's listening, I'm certainly happy to, to get an email and, and, um, and share information and, and give you a quote on that. Uh, it's, it's very reasonably priced and is something that we've done for clients around the world. Uh, uh, Stefan says, thank you very much for your answer and for this great webinar. You did indeed pronounce my name right. I am so happy to hear that. <laughs> just, I, I um, <clears throat> you know, as a, as a speaker of English, um, sometimes my pronunciation of, of people's names is, is not always good. So I'm glad I, I hit the target. Um, Let's see, Craig says, for faults that are found late in the process, the test team needs to know if it was newly introduced. It will really help the discussion and finger pointing. Probably, I think you may have meant to say avoiding finger pointing, Craig. Um, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, if there is finger pointing, if there's why the hell am I hearing about this for the first time right now and somebody's going to get a beating for that, then of course, everyone's going to head for the tall grass and try to obscure the the responsibility um so you know it shouldn't be seen that way it should just be seen as oh 
we had a process breakdown. How do we fix the process to make sure that this doesn't happen again? And, and that needs to be a mindset that comes from above. That goes way back. I mean, Deming talks about this in, in his um, stuff on quality management. And, he, and this is one of his rules, drive out fear, right? And people are worried about, oh, crap, I'm going to be held accountable for something that wasn't my fault. So that obfuscation of responsibility becomes a key um, activity in people's lives, which, you know, is, is not, not positive. Um, let's see, I've got a, uh, uh, comment here from Ian. Thanks for both answers. And I've enjoyed this great webinar. Well, thanks Ian for attending. If you know somebody else who could benefit from this, we're going to run a, our evening session tonight, which is at uh, eight thirty central time, central U S time. So, um, second session run tonight. If people can't attend um, uh, either of the live sessions, the recorded version of this will be posted uh, shortly. Okay, so um, to close this session, let me tell you a little bit more about the resources that are available through RBCS. We do run these free webinar sessions once a month, um, the day and the evening one. Check our website, rbcs-us.com, to sign up. You want a special webinar presentation for your company only of this webinar or uh, any other topic related to software testing, send us an email, info at rbcs-us.com or contact us uh, via our uh, website. If you don't already receive our regular free newsletter, you can sign up again at rbcs-us.com. This will get you valuable discounts on consulting and training services along with a regular newsletter. Uh, that includes a featured article on software testing and quality and news about what RBCS and its partners are doing lately. Follow us on Twitter. That's uh, twitter.com uh, slash RBCS. Uh, you see that here. We're at RBCS. Uh, also on Facebook. Uh, do check your email over the next couple days. Um, you could be the uh, winner of a uh, free e-learning. You've been registered simply by attending. Check out my blog. It's back, rbcs-us.com slash blog, which is also the stuff that's there. It gets cross-posted on our LinkedIn and Facebook accounts. So you can, you can get to it by various means. Uh, feel free to post comments or email me on topics that you'd like to discuss uh, on the blog. Uh, I think the comments probably uh, most, you'll be most successful posting comments on our Facebook page when the blog posts are there. Do check out our uh, recorded webinars, podcasts, and videos. Uh, you can subscribe to the uh, podcast via iTunes as RBCS Podcast. We also have an RSS feed on our website. We have the RBCS channel on YouTube, so there's all sorts of stuff out there. We offer these free resources as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS we are a not just for profit company. Uh, this concludes the webinar. Thanks to everyone for joining us today, and I look forward to seeing you on future webinars.